to everyone who has participated in our last two outreach events. They've been a great success because of your uh, work and your endeavor. Uh, for those of you who might not know, we uh, the first year we tried to do three big uh, block parties. It was all our initiative the first year we planted, and they all failed miserably. And we walked away from that failure and said, well, what could we do differently? And the Lord was very clear. He said, why don't you figure out what the city's already doing and join them in what they're doing? And that has been the 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 special sauce, if you will, of our outreaches. We just go to the city and say, what are you guys doing this year? How can we help? And um, and it's just been awesome. Um, we love uh, the city of Stanwood. Every year we get to participate in those events uh, whereby we encounter people that we might not otherwise encounter. We get to love on our community. We get to give the kids a place to play in the bouncy house, and we get to share the gospel with anybody who will listen to us. It's just, thank you, City of Stanwood, for gathering all the people in one place for us to evangelize. This past week, we participated in National Night Out. We brought our Noah's Ark inflatable. We had some great conversations with our neighbors about spiritual realities. And then yesterday, we, some of us passed out water at the Stanwood Parade. Now, demand for water was down this year uh, because it was a very overcast day. And, um, and that was okay. Um, global warming, who knew? Uh, we, we handed out bottles of cold water to anyone who wanted them. And it came into my heart once again as we were doing that. Samuel and I were making the second round on our section of the parade route. And it came into my heart, Matthew 10, 40 to 42. Whoever receives you, Jesus said, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. See, the one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive the prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. But then here's verse 42. I love this verse. It says, and whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And every time I handed a, a cold bottle of water to a kid yesterday, I thought about that verse. I said, oh, Lord, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to love our community. So here's, here's what I want to say to you. I know some of you had legitimate reasons why you couldn't be at one or both of those events, but many of you are missing a blessing. Man, when we get out there and we just love on our community and interact with them, it's a blessing to be able for just a few more minutes here on this earth, to openly proclaim the gospel is one of the greatest privileges that we have. And when Jesus comes for us, we will never again have that opportunity to share the gospel with somebody who doesn't know the gospel. Think about that. Consider what a privilege it is to be among those who are tasked with telling the gospel. Consider the honor of that reality. We still have Touch a Truck coming up in September, and I want to encourage you all to participate, even if it's just to come and see what it's all about and, and mill around and, and eat some food and play some games. Our town needs evangelizing. Our neighbors need the gospel taken to them. We've been tasked with the mission. Will you join us? Okay, rant over. Now sermon about the same thing. I want to talk to you about a good example, a good lesson from a bad example. You know, Jesus will do that sometimes just to throw us a curveball. He'll give you some, some truth, 
but it's wrapped in something. You go, well, yeah, but that, but the guy who he's he's a turkey. Like, what? Why would you use that person? It's hard for us to sort sometimes in Scripture. Um, on one occasion, President Calvin Coolidge invited some folks from his hometown to come have dinner at the White House, and since uh, none of them knew proper etiquette at a state event on this occasion, they thought, well, here's what we'll do. Our best, our best uh, interest here is to watch the president because he's from our hometown, and whatever he does, that's what we'll do. And so coffee was served, and President Coolidge poured some of his coffee into his saucer. So the folks saw him do that, and they kind of looked at each other, and then they did the same. And then the president uh, poured some, some milk into his saucer, and the home folks saw him do that, and, and so they, they looked at each other and, and so poured a little milk in their saucers. And then the president took that saucer, and he leaned over, and he put it on the floor and called his cat. And I share that illustration to say that the Bible tells us we need to practice discretion about who and what and why we imitate in life. We need to be discreet. We need to think it through. We need to be circumspect about who we listen to and what we obey. And first and foremost, we're supposed to imitate and be like Jesus Christ. And part of imitating Jesus Christ is taking to heart when he counsels us to be wise, even shrewd, in our dealings with outsiders in particular. Now, shrewd is not a term that we use often, so let's define shrewd. It means having or showing sharp powers of judgment, uh, or you could just say being astute. It's, it's marked by clever discernment and awareness and a hard-headed acumen or perception. In, in short, we must be shrewd for God. Let me, let me give you some examples to get you thinking clearly. We need to be shrewd in our worship. Well, somebody's sitting there going, how can we be more shrewd in our worship? Well, maybe you uh, shrewdly figure out that you're more effective praying while walking or standing than sitting. And we have a prayer segment one Sunday. Well, get up and walk around. If, If you pray better walking around, like we just... We just have this thing in the church which is like, oh, I'm just going to do what everybody else does, right? Maybe, you're, maybe today you're shrewd in connecting with others. Uh, so maybe you shrewdly prepare a Sunday meal on Saturday night or early on Sunday morning, and then you go to church and you seek out a family or some people and invite them over to have Sunday lunch. That's, that's being shrewd. It's taking what resources you have. It's taking what God has given you and using it for his kingdom. We should all be shrewd in serving. A shrewd Christian looks behind uh, the beaches and big houses on Camino Island and all the veneer and doesn't assume that, hey, they're all good, uh, but presses in to discover the needs of the people around them and uses their effort and imagination to meet the spiritual needs of their neighbors. We should be shrewd like that. We should be shrewd in inviting people to church. We should be shrewd in inviting people to Christian events in our community. You might, in, you might involve yourself in a secular group to develop relationships with unbelievers. Some of you are sitting there this morning going, he, did he just say I could, I could have secular friends? Yeah, you should. You should. You should make friends with unbelievers, 
right? We joined the YMCA. I'm just finding it really challenging to strike up conversations while I'm swimming laps. We could scheme about how to bring the message of salvation through Jesus Christ to our community with the same effort and imagination that we use in developing strategic plans for marketing our products in the secular world. If we could just attain to that level, right, Christianity would, everybody be talking about it. Why wouldn't we be strategic as the people of God? The culture is, especially as it goes after our children, why should we not be shrewd for the kingdom? Shrewdness for God has eternal rewards. It's only through the love and grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ that any of us have a place in heaven. Amen? We can't get to heaven by anything we do, no matter how shrewd it is. But Jesus says that we will be welcomed into eternity by the friends of God that we've made through our effort and imagination in serving Him. That, that's not an end in itself. It's this is the staging ground for eternity. You understand? This is the staging ground. So we need to examine our lives and determine how we can increase our shrewdness, not for our own gain, but for the kingdom, for God. You and I need to take a hard look at how God is calling us to serve him. And then we need to review our inventory, review our resources. And, and becoming shrewder does not necessarily mean doing more right? See, we don't, as a church, we don't sign up for every event that Stanwood puts on the calendar. We don't, we don't do that. We pick and choose a few so we don't burn each other out, right? And then, we, and then we strategically go after those events to be a presence in the community to share the gospel. So we, we, we don't do every event because that wouldn't be practical. It was a picking and choosing uh, and passing of some opportunities actually is shrewd. It wouldn't be shrewd to try to do everything. It wouldn't be practical. And, and so being shrewd means doing a few things well with effort and imagination. So my goal for every one of you here today is that you would leave this place intent on being shrewd for God. You'd be shrewd. So let's go to the text. Let's see what Jesus has to say on this topic. This is one of the most confusing parables in the gospel. I'll just tell you straight up. Luke 16, 1 to 13. And we'll take it in, in little bite-sized chunks. Verse 1, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this manager was wasting his possessions. And he called to him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what am I going to do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So here Jesus establishes for us the problem. The manager has, has had charges leveled against him, and now he's going to be fired, and the text tells us why. It's alleged that he's wasting the rich man's resources and possessions. He's about to lose his job, and the issue here is stewardship. It's stewardship. The things that he was using as if he were owned did not actually belong to him. But he, he used them as a, they did. They, they actually belonged to his boss, his employer. So he's being presumptuous as to, as to use what is not his own for his own personal gain. And word of his mismanagement has reached his employer's ears. The hammer's coming down. He's about to be out of a job. And not only that, right, but word spreads to others 
He's going to have a hard time finding work now because of this reputation that he's got. And seeing this sudden turn of events and understanding the repercussions that he's facing, this shrewd manager takes action. He has an aha. We call it an aha moment. Or if you're Jewish, you go, aha. It's one of those moments, right? He realizes immediately that he's going to need a new benefactor. But instead of finding one person to be his new benefactor, this guy spreads himself out seeking help and ingratiating himself with many people. That's savvy. He calls on all the people who have had debts from his former employer, and he dramatically lowers their debts. Now, I know some of you, especially those of you with strong moral compasses and ethics, are angry or confused by this move. Why would Jesus say this? We recall that it's, it's Jesus who's speaking and who seems to be giving this fictional money manager a pass, but hang in there. Hang in there, okay? Verse 5, So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And the, and the man said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said, Here, take your bill, sit down, write it quickly, write 50. That guy just got half off. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. And the master, get this, commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. See, the plan is to ingratiate himself to as many people as he can by lowering their debt. And that's a good plan. I'm not saying it's moral. But it's a good plan, and it's savvy. And, and, and again, not speaking to the moral component here at all, which is, again, really hard for some of us to disengage that. But it's upon this point many, where many readers of Scripture get confused and give up on trying to understand this parable. And if we get too focused on the parable, the story, we will fail to understand it. So let me just tell you plainly that the master who is being cheated in the parable is not God. You can't cheat God. In fact, none of the people in this parable are meant to be role models for us in this context. The very next verse gives us the key to understanding. It says, for the sons of this world, Joe, Joe Pagan, average Joe Pagan, the, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the church, than the sons of light. Well, just let that sit on your heart for a minute. Jesus is saying to us, as his bride, as the church, as his body, you know, the pagans are more savvy in dealing with each other and, and ingratiating themselves to one another than we are as the church. In verse 9, it says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Now, that's not un unrighteously gained wealth, right? Don't go rob a bank so you have lots of friends, okay? Your pastor did not tell you to do that. <laughs> Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, you may, receive, you may be received into eternal dwellings. Okay, the key to this parable is verse 8b. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their dealing than their own generation 
in their own generation than the sons of light, right? Jesus is giving us an example of how people in the world look out for themselves first. But he's encouraging us to think long-term and store up treasures in heaven, which in one sense is looking out for ourselves, isn't it? Doesn't that benefit us? Well, I thought we were supposed to be altruistic and never do anything that benefits ourselves. Well, the Scripture never says that. Putting your faith in Jesus benefits you. Now, that'd be a violation right away. Okay, God wants us to use our resources. He wants us to use our finances in a way that results in him saying to us, well done, good and faithful servants. You put this, this stuff to use in the world, in this life, to build the kingdom. To, to draw people into the kingdom. You use your time, talent, treasure, and touch to build my kingdom. And so verse 10, we see one who is faithful in very little is also faithful with much. And one who's dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So let's get to the big reveal. We are managers of God's resources. Some of us manage much. Some of us manage little. And there's a whole spectrum and it's gauged on what God knows about us and what our capacity is. And there's no hierarchy here, by the way. Some of you can handle lots of resources. Some of us can handle little, and, and, and that's okay. That's okay. God knows us. He knows how we're made. But God is our employer, and we are the managers of whatever he chooses to entrust to us while we're here on this earth. So this parable is telling us that God wants us to be savvy with his resources and to use them to make friends and to win people to Christ. God wants us to use his resources to advance his purposes and expand his kingdom in the hearts of people made in his image. This isn't about us. It's about him. It all belongs to him. It's his kingdom. We're his. This is all about investing in the kingdom of God. Your life is not about ownership. Please don't ever, ever let that take root in your heart. It will be a battle for you. It will be a, it will be a difficulty. Don't let this idea of ownership take, take heart in you. Your life is about stewardship. You're a steward. There's nothing that you possess that is yours except for your sin. You can call that yours. Because it's not Jesus's. It's not about ownership. All of it belongs to God. You're a steward only. The question you have to answer is whether you're a good steward or not. Are you a good steward? Are you growing in your stewardship? And every single one of us will answer to God for how we have utilized his resources. We'll answer. So the culture says, that your money and your stuff, it belongs to you exclusively. And that you have the autonomous right to use your money and your belongings in any way you wish. 
And that false message is drummed into us daily through the media, through the television, the internet, through educators, advertising, financial advisors, and the list goes on and on and on. But in contrast to that, the Bible tells us that nothing that we have is ours. None of it. We've been given a stewardship. We own nothing but our own sin. Everything else is the Lord God's to do with as he pleases. So we really, really ought to seek his will about that. We ought to pray and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? I really, Lord, I was hoping to get that Ducati this way. Lord, I was hoping to buy that Lamborghini, said the pastor. Well, it's funny. He said no. Okay, well, Toyota. Okay. We, we've got to go to the Lord and say, boss, what do you, what do you think? What do you, what do you want? What do you want me to do with this? Did you know that you can enjoy heaven more by being generous now? Did you know that? Now hear me. It's choosing delayed gratification instead of instant gratification. And the problem is our culture is so immersed in instant gratification. Right? So, so, so that's the bottom line of the meaning of the parable. Don't focus on the manager's shrewd, unethical pragmatism. That's not the point. Entry into heaven is already paid for by Christ himself when he died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. The point of the parable is that the, the manager used his employer's money and resources generously to influence people so that his future would be more pleasant. And let me just tell you something. So should we. Now, I'm not talking about my future in this life. I'm talking about the future, the kingdom that's coming. So also we Christians should use God's material resources generously to influence people towards Christ. That means giving to the local church. It means giving to missions and, and then beyond. L listen to how the Apostle Peter frames this in 2 Peter 1, 3-11. He says, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So wait, God's power has granted us all things that we need to live go godly? That's what the text says. And he says that comes through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Then we've got to get to know God. We've got we've to work on a relationship with God and get to know him so that we can understand this in reality. So he says, um, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. Wow. Have you read this? You have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire? I can't wait for that. I don't know about you. I can't wait for that. For this very reason, this is what Peter says to do. Here's, here's, the, here's the doing part of this passage. Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue is, is goodness, internal goodness that, that rules your decision making, right? He says, uh, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then with virtue, 
Add to virtue knowledge. So, so read your Bible. Study your Bible. And then he says this. After, after the knowledge piece, he says, and knowledge, add self-control. Because the more you know about God, the more you read his word, the more you see the need to kind of keep this in check. Right? So add to that self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness, the more you you start to be like God, the more you you have brotherly affection in the church. And and then and brotherly affection add add love in the mix. Okay? For if all these qualities are yours and they're constantly increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As you know, there's so many people who know all the right answers about Jesus. They're in the church today. They're saved, probably. Maybe. Probably. But they're, but they're, not, they're not doing anything with what they've learned. They're just sitting and soaking. And, and here Peter's saying, no, no, no. You've got to be active in, in engaging people and, and obeying Christ in order to move through this progression towards maturation. You want to be mature in Christ? Get off the sofa. Quit watching God TV all day and get out there and tell somebody about Jesus. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities, and remember Peter's still speaking about those in the church. He says, if you're lacking these qualities, that person's so nearsighted that they might as well be blind. They've forgotten that he cleansed them from their former sins. So like, well, I, I went to church when I was eight, and I, and I, got, and I got saved. I, I walked the aisle, prayed the prayer. They dunked me in the same service, and I'm good to go. And I've never gone back to church since then, and I just... It's like, no, no. If these qualities are yours and they're increasing, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that they might as well be blind. They've forgotten that, that he was cleansed from his, they, they were, they've forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. And so Peter says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities that I just listed out for you here, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What an incredible promise. See, you and I are managers of God's material resources and and some immaterial resources. Our, Our time is a limited resource, and we don't know exactly how much of it we have in this life. Therefore, every single one of us ought to make the most time for the kingdom of God. And this is precisely how my, my family migrated here to Washington from Georgia. Let me give you the, the super short version. The house we lived in right after Jen and I got married, two crazy 20-somethings just in, wildly in love, um, we got married. That house was rent-free to us for a year because the owner was gone most of the year on business and needed someone to keep his house up while he was gone. It's like, thank you, Lord. And he had a really nice lawnmower, too. I, I love mowing grass. I was like, I was so happy. Um, and, God, and then God called our, our family. Um, 
when we just about a year later, about 90 minutes away from that place in Atlanta, we, we moved over to Athens, Georgia, to the University of Georgia to work with college students. And, and you know what God did? He provided a house for us. And we rented that little house for a couple of years, and God provided what we needed to pay the rent. And we, I mean, we weren't making hardly anything at all. And it, it was just every month, Lord, are you gonna, are we gonna be on, out on the curb? And He provided, and then, and then He provided a bigger house across town for our growing family as we added kids. And we rented there, and then we were able to. I don't even know. It still blows my mind how we were able to purchase that house. We were just a couple of young parents with a growing family who didn't know anything about anything and just loving some college students. And God said, no, I'm going to take care of you. And it just makes my head spin. And then when he called us out here to Washington State, we had no idea how we were going to make it. None. We just came on faith. We, we packed up one of those pods with the stuff that we thought we really needed and, and gave the rest away and sent it on ahead. And then our family drove for 11 days across country Abby was like three when we did that. It's crazy to me. But, I, but we came out on faith. We lived in Lake Stevens for three months in a, in a house that was for sale and had no furniture. We lived on blow-up furniture. It was awesome. And then, we, and then we moved to Arlington and Oso area for about three months. And then, and then you know what happened? And this is a super, super short version. God literally gave us the house that we're still living in today. It was a process, but, but now it's, in, it's just incredible to look back and see his provision. Here's the key to all of this, okay? Someone who hears that story for the first time might be tempted to think that we're some kind of super Christians that discovered next level Christian something to be able to live like that, and that's just not true. It's just not true. That's, that's just God. When, when we're actively seeking him and, and seeking to be faithful and doing what he's called us to do, God provides. He provides. So people think, you know, we have some, some behind the scenes, like we got next level God access. They'd be wrong. They'd be wrong. We simply ask God for the provision that he knows that we need. And he provided. And we've strived to walk in obedience as stewards, not owners, right? We're not owners of anything. We're stewards. We're, we've always done, done that. But we haven't always done it perfectly. Now, here's the key to all of this. We have known and understood the reality that it's not ours. We have, we have known and understood the reality that we are stewards and that we will give an answer for our stewardship. And that's how we all need to think as Christians. You need to, if you have an ownership mindset, you need to disengage from that paradigm and, and replace it with a stewardship mindset. Nothing that you have other than your own sin is yours. It's all God's. It's all God's. And when you give to God, whether it's your time, talent, treasure, or touch in the lives of others, you are saying to him that you desire him above all things. You are walking in obedience to his will and his ways. And this is why Jesus ends the parable with this. He says, no servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The condition of your heart is gauged by what you desire. It's what Jesus has already stated clearly. If your treasure's here on earth, your heart's going to be here on earth. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. 
And if your treasure is in heaven, if your heart is in heaven, that's where your treasure is going to be. And the Lord's asking every one of us the question this morning, are you going to give up earthly treasures here and now? Use them shrewdly to bring others to Christ in exchange for what I've set aside for you for all eternity. Can you do that? Will you do that? Folks, it sure seems like a no-brainer to me. The purpose of this life is to gain admittance to the kingdom of God by receiving Jesus Christ as king and then yielding ourselves to his will that he might use us to build his kingdom. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world in his incarnation, in his first coming, but in, the, in order that the world might be saved through him. I mentioned the first coming because, you know, there's another one. There's another one. Last Sunday, I called an audible. I preached on the imminent pre-tribulation rapture of the church. It was timely, not only because we're on the cusp of that event, I believe, but as we parsed this passage, it would seem that our stewardship of God's resources is coming to an end, wouldn't you say? And we're going to have to give an accounting for our stewardship. Whether by death or by rapture, this life is coming to a close. And when you stand before the Lord, not to give an answer for the hope that is within you, not concerning your salvation, but when you stand before the Lord to answer for your stewardship, what is he going to say? What will he say to you? Will, what will be his assessment of your management? Were you shrewd with earthly things for the kingdom so as to make friends on earth whereby you could share the gospel and make disciples? See, this life is not an end in itself. It's the staging ground for eternity. What, is, what does Paul tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 6? Um, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on riches, the un uncertainty of riches, but to set their hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Why? To lead people towards Jesus Christ. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. My friend, Pastor DJ says, one of the greatest ways to demonstrate that we don't trust God is to not honor him with what he's given us. If you're not honoring the Lord with what he's provided for you, it's an indication that you don't trust him. Not in the way that he wants you to. You ought to be giving generously to the local church where you are fed the word and have fellowship with the family of God. And, and then someone, a young person asked me this week, do pastors tithe and give to their own church? And I said, you bet. They better. They better be investing back in their own church if they have a heart for the gospel. You can give money through the church to support missionaries all around the world. You can do that directly as a family. We tithe as a family. When the kids grew up and started working, we made sure that they understood tithing and giving and that they would honor the Lord with their first and their best. And I can't even tell you what it's done for my kids. It's, it's a crazy to me um, to, to, to support missionaries and, and pray for them as a family at the breakfast table as they grew up. 
As we prayed for them regularly, the gospel was solidified in my kids' hearts and the seeds of serving Jesus were planted at the breakfast table. Parents, take advantage. But you've got to have skin in the game. You can't just say, this is what you should do. You've got to do it. You can't give to local, you, excuse me, you can give to local and regional ministries who help the poor and the homeless. There are plenty around here. You can invest your treasure in pro-life causes that protect the pre-born. You ought to do that. You can get together with other Christians and do things for people in need, house chores, work, repairs. Man, you can just go and sit. Some of, some of my favorite moments are just sitting with Jeff and Deb on the back porch at Lake Kai, just, just chatting, just talking and laughing. I just love hanging out with those guys. But, but that's what Jesus calls us to, just to be with each other, love each other, invest in each other, be savvy, be shrewd, make the most of the time. The days are evil. If what I'm preaching this morning is true, and it is, or I wouldn't preach it, uh, then, then why wouldn't we do everything in our power to be pleasing to God? Our Lord and Master wants to know why we're not as shrewd as the people of the world. They do a great job at ingratiating themselves with the rich and powerful. They know how to leverage their gifts and resources and talents in a way that benefits them. And our Father wants us to have the same outlook concerning His kingdom. Not this life. Don't be like that. But the kingdom. It was the urgency of the circumstance that drove the manager's behavior and decisions. It was the urgency. He knew things were coming down fast. You follow me? Eschatology, we're, we're near. We're almost at the end of our stewardship. And for us, the hour is late. Christ is coming. One of the last things Jesus says in Scripture is, Behold, I am coming soon, and my reward, some, some translations have the word recompense, is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. It's Revelation 22, 2. We stand on the precipice. Jesus is coming for his bride. Let the children of God be shrewd in these last days. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would direct our steps as we think about this parable and its application for our lives, every one of us as a church as a, as a whole and as individuals in this church, Lord, how would you have us um, engage shrewdly with the people in our lives, or maybe people we haven't met yet, for the sake of the kingdom? Lord, we ask you today that you would speak very clearly to each one of our hearts. Every one of us has a stewardship. Every one of us has relationships with people who, who either know you or or at some point said that they came to know you, but they're not living for you. Lord, we have all kinds of opportunities for the gospel all around us. Lord, help us to be savvy. Help us to be good stewards. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we rejoice in you. We give you all praise this morning. Thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Amen. This parable that we've just worked through this morning tells us that God wants us to be savvy about his resources and to use them to make friends with other people for the sake of Christ. God wants us to use his resources. That's awesome. To advance his purposes and expand his kingdom in the hearts of people made in his image. 
All of this is about investing in the kingdom of God. Your life is not about ownership. Your life is about stewardship. And there's nothing that you possess that is yours. All of it belongs to God. You're a steward only. So use that which is valuable in this world to make friends and influence people for the kingdom. Amen? Emmaus Road Church, you are sent. Thank you.